You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised, the following episode contains graphic retellings of events that may be deeply disturbing to some people. Please consider this as a trigger warning. Take breaks if you need to. The stories you are about to hear could be considered raw and heartbreaking. This episode is in no way an advertisement or endorsement of any recent media surrounding similar subject matter. Today, we focus on the often overlooked stories of the people who this new invention hurt along the way. Monday morning the end of the weekend, and the start of a bustling new workday. You wake up after hitting snooze a few times. Maybe you take your dog out, or maybe you lay there a little bit longer to scroll on your phone. When you finally get up and brush your teeth and get dressed, you realize you're running late. Maybe not late late, but just a little behind schedule. So you just decide to grab coffee on the way into work. You head downstairs and see one of your neighbors getting their children in the car. Another neighbor heads out to check the mail, you're thinking about your plans after work. Dinner with friends, maybe? The gym? Visiting family? It's a warm summer day and the sky is clear, except for a small plane that flies overhead. You start to get in the car, but an object catches your eye. When you look closely, you realize that something fell from that plane. It's small and hard to make out from where you're standing, but before you have a moment to even speculate what it might be or to ask one of your neighbors if they see it too, you are engulfed by blinding white light. What follows next is nothing short of hell on earth. This almost sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but Monday morning, April 6, 1945, what started out as a regular day in Hiroshima, it was a reality that turned into something sinister. And just a few days later in Nagasaki, the torment would continue. Both of these cities experienced the unspeakable horrors of an atomic bombing and still today, they are the only cities to do so. This episode explores the catastrophic consequences of these bombings, the people responsible, and how we even got there in the first place. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. World War II was already terrifying enough. The casualties and suffering were seemingly never-ending, and the scientific community was about to get some news that would add on a new layer of fear. Word on the street was that Germany, which was currently under the control of Adolf Hitler, was in the process of learning how to make an atomic bomb. With a weapon like that, the Nazis could wreak havoc. And not to sound dramatic, but they could take over the world. You might be wondering, how exactly does an atomic bomb even work? 
I'm not a physicist, but from what I've gathered, it goes like this. The smallest particles known to us are atoms, smaller than cells even. In fact, just about everything is made up of atoms. Your phone, you, even your dinner are all considered matter and therefore are made up of atoms. And depending on how the particles that make up these atoms are arranged determines what you get. There are three kinds of particles that make up an atom, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Protons and neutrons make up the nucleus, and electrons hover along the outside of that nucleus. Keep in mind, this is at a level that's not even naked to the human eye. On the periodic table, the number at the top above the element's name represents how many protons are in the nucleus. If you have an element with a large number like uranium or plutonium, the nucleus is much larger than, say, oxygen. And because they are a lot bigger, they're not quite as stable. This is also what makes these substances radioactive. It also takes a lot more force to keep them together. If scientists could figure out a way to carefully split these atoms apart at the most basic human level, then this would start a chain reaction. They would do this by hitting the nucleus with a neutron particle until it breaks. When it comes apart, it would release three more particles as a byproduct. Those particles would hit other nearby nuclei and the chain reaction would start up. This reaction would lead to an explosion. In less scientific terms, imagine if you had 23 of those balls from the ball plates we used to play in as kids, the kind that were covered in germs and smoothed around the sides. And somehow you managed to stack them up in a neat little pile without any glue. The pile isn't exactly stable, but it's holding together. And then someone slowly starts rolling balls toward the pile. Eventually, with the right hit, the pile will fall apart and some balls will roll away from the pile in the process. And when they roll away, they hit nearby piles and keep the process going. Now, this hypothetical is completely harmless, but even then, you would have a mess on your hands in no time. And in the case of a nuclear explosion, the blast is so large that it is as powerful as several thousand tons of TNT. Sounds easy enough in theory to a scientist, but how do you make something like this happen without being able to see the particles? In theory. Regardless of the uncertainties, the scientific community had to spring into action. Their solution, if Germany was making a bomb, then we just had to be the ones to beat them to it. A couple of problems, though. Germany's mission was also top secret, and it was unsure how much progress had been made. Like racing someone in the dark and you have no idea how far ahead they are. They could be nearly at the finish line for all you know. But the one advantage was that no one had ever made a bomb like this before. Ever. In fact, although the reaction could work, the idea of such a weapon was purely hypothetical based on scientific knowledge and theories available at the time. And even if they could be successful at making such a bomb, would it even work? And if it did work, what happened after that? Italian physicist Enrico Fermi had a pretty good grasp that it was possible. And while he and a team of scientists had these ideas, they needed funding. A letter was written to President Franklin D. Roosevelt requesting funding for a program that would allow the U.S. to create the first nuclear bomb. Albert Einstein even vouched for it. As we all know, Einstein was still one of the most widely known and respected scientists of his time. His backing drove home the seriousness and credibility of the matter. With the permission of the president, Fermi was about to produce nuclear fission for the first time and the basis for the bomb. Without the first experiment, there would have been no atomic bomb. He and his team had managed to build the first nuclear reactor. The nuclear reactor was designed to create that chain reaction we talked about earlier, and he did it underneath a school. 
Well, more specifically, underneath a football field at the University of Chicago. The field wasn't in use at the time, and by working underground, the project would go virtually unnoticed. People worked around the clock to make this happen, taking 12-hour shifts so that the work was nonstop. There were several layers of graphite bricks piled on around the uranium to contain it. In a little over two weeks, the reactor was constructed. December 2, 1942, they were able to not only create, but control the reaction. Don't get confused, though. Just because this all worked does not mean that this was not extremely risky. The safety measures were laughable at best. Although there were materials inside the structure to help control the reaction, there was no cooling system to shut things down if everything overheated. If something had gone wrong and there had been a meltdown or explosion, Chicago would have been altered forever and several of its inhabitants killed. After this success, everyone felt comfortable enough and the scientists were given the go-ahead. The U.S. government established the incredibly top-secret Manhattan Project. This was a massive, completely covert, and very expensive operation involving thousands of people in three countries. The United States, Canada, and the U.K., and out of those thousands of people, the one you probably have heard the most about is J. Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was smart, and no one is denying that, but he was extremely troubled. He grew up wealthy. His mother was a classically trained painter, and his father was in the textile industry. Oppenheimer was fairly sheltered as a child. As he grew older, so did his intellect. But socially, he often rubbed people the wrong way. He gave people the ick, if you will. A lot of the people who were his friends described him as someone who was self-loathing and probably depressed. In his early 20s, he managed to rebrand himself and add a little more charm to his abrasive personality. By the time he was approached with the opportunity to be involved in this project, he was already married with a child, continuing his work with physics. The Manhattan Project wasn't just about Oppenheimer. He was put in place as sort of a leader, but this was a team effort. Plus, so many people doubted his ability to pull it off in the first place. During the project's active year, starting in 1942, several activities took place. Money was no object, and the word no was not an option when it came to this particular undertaking. The stakes were seen as too high to worry about the price tag or who was getting hurt along the way. The first step was to collect the plutonium and uranium needed to make the bomb. The main source? The Democratic Republic of Congo. Uranium there was more abundant than anywhere in the world. Germany was occupying Belgium at the time, and at that time, Belgium had a long history of colonization in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But that did not stop the United States government from siding their way under the radar and directly making contact with the right people in charge in Congo. From there, they would essentially have to smuggle uranium back into the country. Now, uranium doesn't just pop out of the ground and into a bag all by itself. It has to be mined. And the miners that they had working were not given the proper materials to protect themselves. Several of them died from cancer caused by the radiation. In fact, the mining conditions were so frivolous that the exact number of people impacted is difficult to say. But what we do know is that the radiation likely seeped into the water supply and crops. And it wouldn't be the first time. The Navajo tribe of Native Americans had established their communities in the southwest part of the United States, and suddenly they found their land uninhabitable and no one had told them. Hundreds of mines sprang up in the area. The Navajo people were heavily employed to work the mines and extract the sought-after substance. The uranium mined in this area, much like in the Congo, poisoned everything. 
Even after the mines closed, the improper disposal of materials left the area uninhabitable for decades. The owners of the mines pretty much just abandoned the area, leaving waste from the mines and all, without any regard for the consequences. Even though the studies showing the dangers were there, and it's still not completely clean, people carried on living in the area without a clue that they were being poisoned. Every bath and sip of water contributed to the rapid increase in cases of cancer, miscarriages, kidney disease, and a host of other illnesses for decades to follow. Compensation is still pending, and unfortunately, many members of the Navajo Nation have been forced to leave their long-established homes with no return date. Not because of their neglectful actions, but because of someone else's. Their preference, obviously, is to have their land restored and justice served, and they're not wrong. Why should anyone have to leave their home because of a mess they didn't make? The Hanford site in eastern Washington state suffered a similar fate. Several tribes lived and fished in the area, and the mining site was set up near the Columbia River. They were given 30 days to pack up everything they could and move out. Their land was now more important to the Manhattan Project than anything else in the eyes of the government. Though the over 1,500 residents were compensated, it wasn't much, and their homes and farms were cleared to make room for production. When the multi-million tax dollar project was complete, they recruited a workforce without explaining the dangers to the workers. They were told that it was a war construction project with a nice salary and housing included. Thousands flooded to the area to pursue the opportunity. As you could have guessed, rates of cancers and other health conditions rose after this project. The same cycle would take place in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. The Hanford site is still contaminated to this day. The Manhattan Project, in addition to the other nuclear projects that have taken place, will take hundreds of billions of dollars and another 55 years to clean up, with a projection date of 2078. And then there were the plutonium injection experiments. This project intentionally exposed people with radioactive materials for the presumed benefit of those handling and being exposed to radioactive substances. This was not a vaccine. These 30 unsuspecting people scattered across New York, Tennessee, Illinois, and California were injected with various radioactive materials, mainly plutonium, and studied. At the time, the Manhattan Project had already been underway for just about two years. A little too late to start testing the effects of these materials, but okay. And how the tests were conducted were far worse than the why. Some of the participants were commonly referred to by the acronym HP, standing for Human Product. Many of these people went to the hospital seeking treatment for legitimate illnesses and were instead shuffled into testing. So say you go to the doctor for a stomach ache and somehow you wind up being tested for several days and even requested to return and provide samples of blood, urine, and feces in the months following. Majority of these patients died, some a few months afterward, others within several years, but all having a decrease in their quality of life after the encounter. In the case of Eb Cade, a black man and one of the first subjects, he came to the hospital reporting some broken limbs after an accident. During his hospitalization, he was chosen as the perfect subject. After they injected him, five days later, they set his fractures. In the meantime, they took whatever samples they believed were necessary. Fifteen of his teeth were also removed and sampled. He left the hospital without notice and died eight years later due to heart failure at the age of 61, a man who previously had always been in good health. Janet Stad, a Jewish woman who had came to America to escape mistreatment, was injected with plutonium. She was under the impression that this was a part of her care. She was tested and monitored during her time in the hospital and after. She absolutely did not consent. 
Rather than being able to carry on with her expected future with her husband and child, she spent the remaining nearly 30 years in pain battling bone deterioration, later cancer, and other health issues. One of the youngest victims was a four-year-old boy by the name of Simeon Shaw. He was suffering from cancer all the way in Australia. His mother arranged for him to get treatment in the U.S. under the guise that this would give him the best treatment possible. What mother wouldn't want that? This was likely what she believed was best for her sick child. Shortly after arriving, instead of receiving treatment, he received a dose of radioactive materials. After testing concluded, he was returned home, and after eight months, instead of rejoicing at his progress, his mother was planning his funeral. It's important to mention that the most widely agreed upon consensus is that the people being experimented on did not know, or at the very least, not made fully aware of this type of testing or the risk. Years later, the victims' families did receive payment for the unethical experiments. But I'm sure that money didn't come close to the true value of a human life. In the end, the scientific teams got some of their answers surrounding how the bodies react to plutonium, but at what cost? When 1945 approached, the bomb was finally ready to be tested. Where were they going to test it, though? The whole thing was supposed to be top secret, and this atomic bomb would leave a massive mushroom cloud that could undermine the entire operation. Oppenheimer decided on just south of Los Alamos, New Mexico. He had traveled to the state before and absolutely loved it. Were there people living in New Mexico at the time? Yes, but still he thought the spot he picked was far away enough. It was the perfect place to test out this nuclear weapon because the area was viewed as basically empty. The Trinity site in New Mexico would be the location for testing of the atomic bomb. I cannot stress enough that they were not sure if this would work, nor could they be sure exactly what would happen after it worked. There were a lot of calculations and hypotheticals, but as far as something 100%, they could not say. There was even a small concern that the explosion could set the atmosphere on fire. They placed the bomb on a high tower, 100 feet in the air. In the wee hours of the morning, close to 5.30 a.m., July 16, 1945, the bomb would fall. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes, we then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. The explosion lit up the sky like the sun. Fires were everywhere and the heat coming off of the explosion was overwhelming. 
For the first time, a multicolored mushroom cloud rose into the air. The team cheered. They couldn't believe that it actually worked and that all of their efforts were a success. Never mind the deaths that had already accumulated and those that would follow in the future. This was scientific evolution. And just because you can do something means you should. Right? About a month before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the first nuclear weapon was dropped in America. But while they celebrated, the nearby residents were concerned. Imagine being asleep in your bed and suddenly a flash of light comes through your window and a burning smell fills the air. Add on the fact that ash had started sprinkling down from the sky like snow. Wouldn't you be at least a little concerned? And in some cases, these people were able to see the blast from nearly 200 miles away. According to the Trinity Downwinders, some people even thought the world was ending that day. Downwinders is a term used to refer to people who lived close to nuclear mining or test sites. The Trinity Downwinders organization is an organization that specializes in seeking justice for what happened that day and every day after. The ash that came down was in fact radioactive, and it contaminated everything it came into contact with. The residents had no idea, and unknowingly consumed toxins that ruined their livelihood for generations to come. This wasn't a successful test when you consider the disregard for human life the very U.S. citizens that they were claiming to make the bomb to save. It's estimated that upwards of 30,000 people experienced health complications, including cancer, as a result of the blast. So all of this damage, testing, and radiation leads up to the climax of the destruction. President Harry Truman was giddy with anticipation now that the bomb was ready. The question regarding who to drop the bomb on had been resolved. Germany had already fallen. Hitler committed suicide April 30th, 1945, before the test bomb was even dropped at Trinity. But regardless of this, the Japanese were not giving up the fight, even though things were not looking good in terms of them actually winning. They were still a threat. And let's be honest, there was the desire for revenge. After the surprise attack that was Pearl Harbor, the United States was feeling very vengeful, to say the least. But by comparison, I think we can all agree that it wasn't exactly an equal exchange. Don't get me wrong, the lives lost at Pearl Harbor mattered. But apples for apples, the get-back feels a little uneven. But that's not the way President Truman saw it. And so the decision was made. The morning of August 6, the Enola Gay, named after the pilot's mother, took to the open skies. It carried the 1,000-pound uranium-235 bomb, named Little Boy. But there was nothing childlike or innocent about this creation. The crew aboard the plane had to release the bomb and they had about 43 seconds to get out of Dodge before it was set to explode. The blast was so powerful that failure to move out of the way would surely prove fatal. They held their breath with anxiety and flew the plane like their lives depended on it. The plane opens up and down goes the bomb with its parachute. The countdown begins. But when it reaches 43 seconds, the bomb doesn't go off. There was a split second of doubt in the minds of those on board. And if that doubt wasn't justified, that meant America lives in danger. But with the hindsight we have now, we know the mission played out. The bomb did go off after 45 seconds, and it exploded over the city. And from their view, they could see the gargantuan and ominous mushroom cloud. But they didn't cheer. In fact, there was an uncomfortable silence. The team was disturbed at the immense display of power they had just witnessed. Though they saw it as a necessary evil, just following orders. There was an uneasiness about the entire thing. A blinding white light washed over the city. On the ground, flames sprang up everywhere. 
The force from the blast was that of the equivalent of 15,000 tons of TNT and completely flattened everything for miles around. The force from the blast was that of the equivalent of 15,000 tons of TNT and completely flattened everything in Hiroshima for miles around. Here's a survivor from Hiroshima, Setsuko Thurlow, detailing what she experienced that day. It was so dark because of the smoke and dust being sucked up in the mushroom cloud and the ghostly procession. I say ghostly because they just didn't look like human beings. Their hair was just all standing up towards the sky. They were burned and blackened and swollen. Parts of the bodies were missing and uh, they were covered with blood and clothes were tattered and the flesh and skin hanging from their bones. A few days later in Nagasaki, a plutonium-235 bomb, known as Fat Man, appropriately named compared to the size of a little boy, was dropped at 11.02 a.m. It exploded with a force of 21 tons of TNT. Although Nagasaki was hit with a much larger bomb, the death toll was not as high as Hiroshima, though still far too many. The hilly landscapes helped shield the people below from some of the damage. The bomb was also dropped further away from its intended target due to cloudy skies. But some damage is an oxymoron when it comes to an atomic bomb, because anything it can reach, it can destroy. And once you see the flash, it's already too late. And what happens after the flash? After the blinding white light? The force from the blast alone knocked people into the air and in all directions. Survivors described feeling like they were flying above the ground, over a hundred feet in some cases. Buildings collapsed like houses of cards. Countless people were buried under those buildings, unable to crawl to the surface. They were crushed beneath the weight of the building material, and no one could get to them, no matter how hard they wiggled and screamed. Some people at the heart of the blast, some people at the heart of the blast were vaporized instantly. Temperatures at ground zero, where the first blast occurred, reached upwards of 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Before people's brains even had an opportunity to process what was going on, they were gone, vanished from the earth. When people returned to the site, they could see shadows from those that had been vaporized, etched on the steps where they sat when the blast hit. After the flash, there were darkness and brief moments of silence. The smoke blocked out any light, in those moments when the sounds returned, they permeated the blindness. The horrors that people witnessed were the rule, not the exception. It was absolute madness. If you survived, you barely knew where you were because the place you were just standing in had became a hellscape instantly. People lost their entire families. Perhaps their mother or brother was one of the recognizable black figures reaching out for assistance. Many other survivors recollect people calling out for water. The blast had rendered them completely dehydrated. Others cried out for help. Children cried for their mothers. They wept with no water left in their bodies to make tears. They described seeing people being completely charred and frozen in place like the people of Pompeii. Babies whose bodies had been broken and ripped apart. People jumped in the river to escape the flames in the burning sky, their skin falling away from their bodies. Some held on to dangling limbs and eyeballs that had fallen off. And suddenly, a cascade of black rain fell from the sky. This rain was thick. It was a combination of ash and water. 
the thirst made it tempting to drink the sludge for some kind of relief. It was also extremely radioactive. Many of those who survived would fall victim to the radiation poisoning. Even if some seemed fine following the blast, they would suddenly fall sick and die because of the radiation. This could happen a few days after the blast and even several years in the case of cancers such as leukemia. Hospitals on the island were bursting at the scenes with patients. After a few short months, the death toll was estimated to be over 200,000 people, majority of which were civilians, not soldiers. Just regular, everyday people, the elderly, families, teachers, parents, and children. In Hiroshima, at least 140,000 people were killed, and in Nagasaki, 70,000. Honestly, the first bomb was possibly more than enough for the unconditional surrender, but it wasn't coming fast enough for President Truman. And the unconditional surrender would mean that Japan would be in the palm of his hand. When a country surrenders without conditions, they can't make any requests on their behalf. This would leave Japan disarmed and solidify a certified victory for the Allied powers. Ending the war was the main reason for dropping the bombs, pushed to the foremost of the most. But that wasn't the entire picture. Truman felt it would seal the deal. The second bomb was also dropped to send a message. It was to show the world that the United States didn't just have one atomic bomb, and anyone who wanted to fight should stand down, especially Soviet Russia, who at the time was also working on a bomb of their own. Some even argued that dropping the second bomb was also just another experiment to see if it worked. I mean, they might as well use it, right? Who cares about the extra 70,000 people murdered for no reason? I personally think the first one was overdoing it. Japan was losing at the point in the war, and yes, everyone wanted the fighting to stop, but many historians also feel that the war could have ended without the use of this type of force, without opening this can of worms. Today, nine countries have nuclear weapons. China, France, India, Israel, Pakistan, North Korea, Russia, the UK, and the United States. 12,500 total, majority of which belong to Russia, with the U.S. as a close second. This number decreased over the years after hitting a spike during the Cold War, but still, these two bombs opened the door for the other 12,000. Japan's surrender was finalized September 2, 1945, and a portion reads, We hereby proclaim the unconditional surrender to the Allied powers of the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters and all of Japanese armed forces and all armed forces under Japanese control wherever situated. Today, Hiroshima and Nagasaki stand tall. Looking at the pictures today makes it difficult to imagine what came before. The generations see no remnants of the graveyard that once took over the city. And how is that possible? I mean, they were practically blown off the map when the nuclear bombs hit. And earlier in this episode, we just talked about the dangers of nuclear waste and how we can make places virtually unlivable for decades. Well, for starters, the bomb was dropped in the air. The radioactive decay was much quicker and people were able to return faster as a result. Mining was not actively happening on the ground down below, so damage to things like groundwater and agriculture were not as severe. They also had way more immediate help than the test sites that have been neglected. The following year began an all-hands-on-deck effort to restore Hiroshima. Rather than waiting years and years to clean and reconstruct, the process was started almost immediately. And shortly after that, Hiroshima was able to be re-inhabited. How surreal that must have been for the survivors to return there. The population was now a fraction of what it once was. Starting over with the nightmarish memories burned in their minds and without the loved ones they felt would always be beside them. Nagasaki was restored after a period of evacuation as well, and less than a decade later, it was almost back to its former self, at least physically. 
But like Hiroshima, the people, now in smaller numbers, would continue to mourn and live in fear. It's worth noting that the United States was part of the effort to rebuild, even though they were responsible for the destruction in the first place. As for Oppenheimer and the people involved in the bombing, they saw it as a necessary evil and the only way to really stop the war. They also felt that it was done in the name of science. It wasn't necessarily something they enjoyed doing, just something that they felt they had to do. Oppenheimer also believed that seeing the nuclear bomb in action would actually prevent more nuclear conflict. But as we said before, that part is debatable. And a lot of historians with 2020 hindsight now agree that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary. There were other ways to end the war that didn't require such hellish force. After the bomb dropped, Oppenheimer tried to backtrack and plead with President Truman about the blood he had on his hands. It's funny how the guilt sinks in when the people the bomb was built for are real, not theoretical. They're not just an enemy nation or island, and a bomb isn't just numbers on a chalkboard. Here's what Oppenheimer had to say about the bomb in 1965, 20 years later. The war had started in 39. It had seen the death of tens of millions. It had seen brutality and degradation, which had no place in the middle of the 20th century. And the ending of the war by this means certainly cruel, was not undertaken lightly. But I am not, as of today, confident that a better course was then open. I have not a very good answer to this question. President Truman threw him out of his office and said, I don't want to see that crybaby scientist ever again. Truman's thoughts on the bomb were, the atom bomb was no great decision. It was used in the war, and for your information, there were more people killed by fire bombs in Tokyo than the dropping of the atomic bombs. It was merely another powerful weapon in the arsenal of righteousness. The dropping of the bomb stopped the war and saved millions of lives. Did these millions of lives include the ones whose lives were forever altered for the worst? I wonder if we were able to add up all of those people, how the numbers would stack up. Until next time. This episode was researched and written by Jordan Howard, narrated and edited by Andre White. If you like the Redacted History Podcast, please give a like, rating, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.